It's green. There we go. Hard to see in the bright sunshine, which I am very thankful for. <clears throat> the Lamb has overcome. Amen? Worthy is the Lamb. Just an awesome, awesome reminder of who we worship and why we're here. Let's go to him in prayer again. Father, as we come before you this morning, I just ask that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear. Father, may you give us lips that speak your praise and hearts, hearts that are close to you. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45 today. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew chapter 6. Oh, sorry, Mark, Mark chapter 6 and verse 45. I I am a visual learner. I'd really rather study study a drawing or a diagram than read words. And images images are easier for me to remember as well. Words, numbers, they require much more effort. Growing up, I have to admit, I actually did not enjoy reading. For any kids that may be listening, I didn't enjoy it, but I did it. Just let's get that straight. But it was tough for me to read Shakespeare in school, Herman Melville, history textbooks. I struggled through them. But give me a good comic book. That was more my speed. In fact, I had subscriptions even through to when I was in graduate school. It's true. Again, kids, don't try this at home. You can do better than I did. Read a classic. Anyway, at some point along the line, I grew up. Well, at least I arrived at what I would say is a reasonable approximation to adulthood. I grew up and I began to see some, some deeper messages underlying some of my old super friends from the comics. And one of those was Superman. In many ways, Superman was a Christ figure, right? He came as a visitor to earth. He set aside his superhuman glory to appear as a mild-mannered human. He came not to be served, but to serve. He loved and he saved people. And although he was invincible, there was always something, whether it was kryptonite, red sun radiation, or some supervillain scheme, there was always something that would bring him to the point where he needed to lay down his life for his friends. The odd thing about the Superman stories, <clears throat> to me at least, in the old days, and I know they've changed the story as it's evolved, but in the old days, the odd thing was his alter ego disguise. As Clark Kent, all he did was swap his super suit for a jacket, tie, and slacks, put on a pair of glasses, comb that S-shaped curl off his forehead, and suddenly, even though he was standing there, same six-foot-two athletic frame, same smile on the same friendly face, suddenly no one 
not even his closest friends, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, knew who he truly was. He was standing there right in front of them, and they didn't have a clue. In Mark 6, we read about some similarly clueless people. That would be Jesus' disciples, the twelve. Mark tells us they were appointed by Jesus to be with him and to be sent out by him to preach. He took them aside and patiently explained his parables to them. They saw him speak to the storm and to the sea, and they watched as they obeyed him. They saw him rescue a man from a legion of demons, as we heard last week. They saw a woman healed simply by touching the hem of his cloak. They even saw him raise a dead girl to life. That's in chapter 5. And what's more, here in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, they themselves went out, the disciples did, and in his name they cast out demons and they healed the sick. And also here in chapter 6, they witnessed Jesus' miraculous feeding of 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish. And afterwards they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces. They witnessed and participated in all this, but they were just like Lois and Jimmy. Here was the man standing before their very eyes, and they did not know who he truly was. We know that they did not know because of the passage immediately following the feeding of the 5,000, which tells of Jesus walking on the water. So let's pick up Mark's narrative there in verse 45 of chapter 6. This is God's word. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. And he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves but their heart was hardened. This is an amazing story, but it has one of the oddest endings. The oddest of endings. Consider Jesus' superpowers that were on display. He, from a mountainside on the shore, sees his disciples, it says, in the middle of the sea. In his gospel, John tells us, that the disciples had rowed three or four miles. So they're out there a good distance on the water. And Jesus doesn't see just a speck out there. Mark says he saw them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And I mean this with awe and respect. Jesus had telescopic vision, or he was tapping into his divine omniscience. He knew everything. In any case, he had a supernatural awareness of the disciples' plight. Then, next, of course, he walks 
on the water? Was he commanding the water molecules to move so as to pro provide a lifting force? Was he locally lowering the temperature momentarily to make little temporary ice stepping stones? Was he just simply defying gravity? I don't know. But what I do know is this. He was in some way suspending the normal course of the physical laws. And he can do that because he's the one who wrote those laws and he's also the one who enforces them. He is, after all, omnipotent. And then there's the cherry on top, verse 51. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. We've seen something just like this before. It was back in chapter 4. Same forces of nature, sea, wind, and in chapter 4, verse 39, he rebukes them and says, Hush, be still, and they obey. The difference is this time, he doesn't need to speak. He just steps into the boat and all is calm. Seems to me that the sea and the wind learned something from the last time this happened. But the disciples, not so much. Here is the omniscient, omnipotent, creator of everything, exercising control over his creation. It is an awesome display. But the disciples don't get it. When they see him, they don't even think he's really there. They think he's a ghost. The Greek says phantasma, an apparition, a phantom, a spirit. They see him and they freaked. They were terrified. They'd seen him raise the dead. They'd seen him feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. This, this is just a walk in the park. Shouldn't they be expecting this kind of thing about now? But okay, there's still the initial shock. That's excusable. But once he gets in the boat and they see he's really there, then everything will click, right? They'll realize it's really Jesus and everything will suddenly make sense. It'll be all so clear. They'll realize who he is and their hearts will be changed forever. But that's not how Mark ends this episode. Instead, he writes, the, disi the disciples were utterly astonished, verse 51, verse 52, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They were utterly astonished. I looked up the Greek for that phrase, and I have to say, I don't think the English does it justice. There are six words in the Greek. It's kind of repetitive. Literally, it says something like this. They were exceedingly, in abundance, amazed. And the word for amazed has the underlying meaning of being removed from a standing position. We normally say things like, I was beside myself, or I was bowled over. The disciples were so amazed, they were totally, exceedingly, in abundance, blown away. And yet, Mark still ends it with this. They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. This seems really odd to me. In fact, there are two things here that seem really odd. First, there's the fact that their heart was hardened. Second, there's the reference to the feeding of the 5,000. What is Mark telling us here? Why are the hearts hardened? Why the reference to the loaves? First, let's consider this word, hardened. Their hearts were hardened. We see this word, at least in our English translations, a lot in our Bibles. 
So much so we've incorporated the phrase hard heart into our everyday usage. What do you think of when you think of a hard heart? Do you think of a stubborn person? An inflexible person? Maybe a person who's lived through troubled times and been left scarred? Perhaps a person who's made a habit of being oppositional and now has grown cold and calloused. I'd have to say that's what I usually think of. Someone who by a conscious decision or force of long ingrained habit of conscious decisions resists change or refuses someone who reaches out to them. They know what is right or best and they choose to op oppose it because they refuse to bend. That person has a hard heart. But, and I don't know if there's any Princess Bride fans out there, in the immortal words of Inigo Montoya, we keep using that word, but I do not think it means what we think it means. At least that's not the kind of hard heart to which Mark is referring here. There are other places in the Bible where that is appropriate, but here it's different. When he says their heart was hardened, what does Mark mean? So it turns out there's more than one Greek word for hardened. The word here, were hardened, is a fun word, hard word to say, pepo romene. Pepo romene. I've been practicing that one. It kind of eventually rolls off the tongue after you work on it for a while. The root word for this is the word for marble. So it refers to a rock or a stone. And it can, can be translated, as it is here, hard or hardened. But it does not carry the sense of being stubborn, not in the sense of consciously turning away or refusing what is right. What Mark is saying here is that the, the disciples are dumb like rocks. They are clueless. You might say insensible, unperceptive, unresponsive, dull, dense, deadened, Obtuse. I had to look, look up that word obtuse. One dictionary defined it as annoyingly insensitive or slow to understand. Annoyingly insensitive or slow to understand. In other words, the truth is right before them, but the disciples are annoyingly insensitive and slow to understand it. They are unperceptive as rocks. What goes on in the mind of a rock? That's a silly question, right? One of my favorite preachers, Ravi Zacharias, who went home to be with Jesus a month ago, when def defining nothing, quoted Aristotle. Nothing, he said, nothing is that which rocks dream about. Nothing is that which rocks dream about. What goes on in the mind of a, a rock? Whether they're asleep or they're awake, what goes on in the mind of a rock? Nothing. What does a rock perceive? Nothing. To what is a rock sensitive? Nothing. And the disciples are hard like rocks. They are, are obtuse, annoyingly insensitive, and slow to understand. So their heart was hardened. Verse 52 says, It's an odd ending to such a marvelous story. It's an odd ending because we read of the miracles and we think, Surely Jesus did these things to communicate a message. And surely this, the disciples would receive that message when it was delivered with such power. With regards to Jesus' parables, we can understand why the disciples might be confused, hidden as their meanings appear to be. But the miracles, surely the miracles would break through the thickest of skulls. Surely the miracles would soften the hardest of hearts. 
But that's not the message Mark is giving us. He's telling us that the disciples still don't get it. Even a couple chapters over, in chapter, uh, chapter 8, Jesus says to them, and also in chapter 4, he says to them, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? This message appears not just at the ending of this story of Jesus walking on the water. As I just mentioned, it's in chapter 8. It's in chapter 4. But it's a major theme through chapter 6. The whole of chapter 6. Chapter 6 is so full of hearts of stone, I could call it a quarry. For those of you who remember Fred Flintstone, I'm sure he would be proud to work in chapter 6, in a place like chapter 6. There's so much stone. The chapter opens with Jesus preaching in the synagogue in his hometown. Verse 2, chapter 6, tells us that his listeners were astonished, just like the disciples were on the boat. It's a different Greek word than was used to describe the disciples, but the meaning is similar. It means they were knocked out of their senses. The many listeners, Mark records in verse 2, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? referring to his teachings. And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And then it says, they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Hard hearts. Perhaps they were dull and insensitive as rocks Perhaps they were inflexible and unyielding by stubborn choice. Perhaps some of both. But these were hard hearts indeed. So hard, verse 6 tells us, that Jesus wondered. He marveled at their unbelief. Hard hearts. Then there's a brief hint of light and life in chapter 6. A softening and a sensitivity and an understanding in verses 7-13 through 13, where the disciples are sent out to preach they preach the gospel, people repent, and they even heal people. So clearly, hardness of hearts can be softened. But then this brief interlude in chapter 6 gives way to the story of John the Baptist and his fate. Talk about hardened hearts. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story. There's King Herod, his queen, and the queen's daughter. Herod had been told by John the Baptist to repent for his unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. Though Herod knew that John was right, that he was a righteous and holy man, it says in verse 20, Herod refused to repent. And the queen, the queen held a grudge against John. Not only was she wedded to the king, she was wedded to her sin. And so she wanted John put to death. And the queen's daughter, she was given the opportunity to choose as a reward for providing entertainment at Herod's birthday party, she was given the opportunity to choose between a gift of anything, Herod said, anything up to half of his kingdom, or John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she, of course, chose John the Baptist's head. Hard hearts, all three of them. Then in chapter 6 comes the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus is walking on the water. And the wrap-up at the end of these stories is, as we've read, that the disciples were utterly astonished for they had not gained any insight 
from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Hard hearts. But it's not just chapter 6. A major story arc through the whole of the Gospel is that people's hearts are hard. You can trace it back even to chapter 3, verse 5, where just before Jesus healed a man's withered arm, as Paul preached on a couple of weeks ago, Mark says that Jesus looked around at the, at the Pharisees, the religious leaders, with anger. And he was grieved. What was he grieved at? Their hardness of heart. Then there's the story of Jesus walking on the water that we just read in chapter 6. This time it's the disciples' hearts that is hard. Then again in chapter 8, verse 17, Jesus, fed, Jesus had fed the 5,000 in chapter 6, then the 4,000 in chapter 8, and then by way of a parable, he starts uh, comparing the false teachings of the Pharisees to leaven. The disciples are confused at that point. And having ears but not hearing, they missed the teaching. They thought Jesus was complaining that they didn't have enough bread for him. And so it says in chapter 8, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have, you guessed it, do you have a hardened heart? Hard hearts. There are other references to hard hearts, both explicit and implicit throughout Mark's Gospel. But the fact that it is a major story arc is pounded home by the way the Gospel ends. In the last chapter of Mark, even after the angels tell of Jesus' resurrection, and Mary Magdalene and others see Jesus re- report back to, they see Jesus and they report back to the disciples. This is what we read, even almost up to the very end of the Gospel. Chapter 16, verse 8 says, They went out and fled from the tomb after Jesus had rose again. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone. Why? They were afraid. Chapter 16, verse 11. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen, they refused to believe it. Chapter 16, verse 13. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Verse uh, 14, chapter 16. says, Afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And Jesus reproached them for their unbelief and for their, you can guess, for their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. As we look to the disciples and the end of Mark's Gospel, almost up to the very end, is there recognition of the truth? Is there joy? Is there triumph? No. There's fear and trembling. There's refusal to believe. There are hard hearts. Hard to what? Hard to what? So we've established that the hearts are hard, but we've sort of been dancing around the main issue. To what are these hearts hard? To what are the people obtuse? To what are they annoyingly insensitive? What are they slow to understand? This brings us to the second odd thing about the ending to the story of Jesus walking on the water. I told you it was odd that the story ended with their hearts were hardened. Now we know that it ends that way because hard hearts is a major story arc, not only in this chapter here, chapter 6, 
but in Mark's gospel overall. But the second odd thing at the end of the story was the reference to the feeding of the 5,000. I'll read it again. It says, They were utterly astonished, verse 51, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now this strikes me as odd because Jesus is walking on the water ends with him calming the wind. And you'd think Mark would flash back not to the feeding of the 5,000, but to the first time Jesus calmed the wind and the sea. It feels to me like it would be the right part of the story to say something like, this was the second time that Jesus calmed the sea, but the disciples still did not understand what Jesus was showing them. But that's not what Mark does. Instead, he points us to the incident of the loaves. So we would would do well to compare Jesus' walking on the water with the feeding of the 5,000. We would do well to compare these two stories. And there are many commonalities. In both cases, the disciples face a difficulty. In the feeding, there was no bread to feed the crowds. In the walking on the water, it was a strong opposing wind. In both cases, Jesus intentionally put them in the difficulty. In the feeding, he told them, you give them something to eat. In the walking on the water, it says, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. In both cases, the disciples were inadequate in and of themselves to overcome the difficulty that Jesus had placed upon them. In the feeding, there was not enough money to buy bread for the 5,000. They would have been 200 days wages. In the walking on on the water, they had been rowing through the, through the night. They had been rowing through the night and they only made a couple miles progress against the wind. And in fact, it tells us that they were rowing slower than Jesus was walking. In both cases, to rescue the disciples, Jesus performed works of power. He bent the physical laws of nature. In the feeding, it was bread and fish multiplying. He made matter out of nothing. In the walking on the water, Jesus defied gravity. And in both cases, Jesus provided abundantly beyond what they could have asked or imagined. In the feeding, it was one full basket left over for each of the 12 of them. In the walking on the water, in John's Gospel, we find that when Jesus got into the boat, if you know the story, it says, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They were immediately transported to where they were trying to go. We could stop here. And we could say, as many a sermon has, that there are lessons the disciples should have taken away from each of these truths. And here are some lessons that we can take away concerning facing difficulty. I'll go down that list of of similarities. Concerning facing difficulty. As long as we are in the flesh, it it is a certainty. We will face trials and struggles. Concerning the fact that Jesus put them in the difficulty. When we face trials and struggles, we ought to consider that God has placed us in them for a purpose, for his purpose. Concerning the fact that the disciples were inadequate, the disciples were inadequate, we ought to understand that apart from God's power, we can do nothing. Concerning the fact that Jesus performed works of power to rescue, we ought to know that Jesus can and does do miracles. And concerning the fact that Jesus provided abundantly Paul tells us that Jesus is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to his power that works within us. That's Ephesians 3, verse 20. 
And all these things are true. And I hope today, as we review them, that you are encouraged by them as we continue to face many difficulties in our personal lives and across our nation. But these truths are not the core of what Jesus wanted the disciples and us to understand. What he wanted us to understand is the answer to the question at hand. The answer to the question at hand. And what is that question? What is the question at hand? First, let's roll the tape back a little bit further than the feeding of the 5,000 and see if we can find any clues. What was the question? Back to the first time Jesus calmed the sea, Mark 4, 41. Every time I read this uh, verse, I think of Keith Schwamm because I remember him teaching it uh, to the kids some years ago. What did the, how did the disciples respond when Jesus calmed the sea? What did they say? Who then is this? Who is this man? Then in Jesus' hometown, in the synagogue, in chapter 6, verse 3, what's the question? Is this not the carpenter? Then, even in Herod's court, the story we talked about in Mark 6, verses 14 through 16, what's the question? We read that Jesus' name had become well known and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead and, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah, and others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Then jump ahead to Mark 8, verse 29 and 20, uh, 27 and 29, right after Jesus feeds the 4,000, which is a repeat performance of Mark 6. Here, Jesus himself asks the question, and what is it? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say? That I am. This is the question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's the second arc in the story of the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus? Hearts are hard. They do not see. That was the first arc. So who is Jesus? Hearts are hard. They do not see. Like Jimmy, Jimmy Olsen, as I referenced, Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane, clueless that Clark Kent is Superman, so the people, all the people, the religious leaders, the political leaders, the common folk, and Jesus' neighbors, even his family, and even his closest friends and followers, the disciples, all of them are annoyingly insensitive and slow to understand his true identity. And what is that identity? Who is Jesus? Is he the one with a purpose in our trials? The one who rescues us from our trials? The miracle worker who does abundantly far beyond what we can imagine? As we reviewed when we compared the stories of the walking on the water and the feeding of the 5,000? Yes, yes, he is all that. But he is far more. Who is Jesus? Curiously, for the answer, Mark tells us, that we must, quote, gain insight from the incident of the bread. That's what he tells us. He doesn't give us the answer right away. Not until after the next incident of the bread in chapter 8. In Mark 6, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. In Mark 8, we come to the feeding of the 4,000. Each time, there's this overabundance. And then in chapter 8, verse 14, 
there's this issue that I mentioned about there not being enough bread. And then we come at last to where we'd expect to find our answer. It's Mark 8, verse 21. What do we find there? What does Jesus say? He says simply this. Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? That's it. The disciples don't even know the question, let alone the answer. After all of these miracles, after the the bread twice, are you confused? I find myself a little confused as I'm reading through. But Jesus, patiently, ever so patiently, Jesus opens their minds and their hearts, even as he opens the eyes of a blind man. He asks them the question, as I mentioned before, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter gives the answer. You are the Christ. And this is the third arc in the Gospel of Mark. You are the Christ. Arc number one is the truth that people are annoyingly insensitive and slow to understand. Arc number two is the question. Who is Jesus? And arc number three is the answer. Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? Jesus is the Christ. It means Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one chosen of God to save God's people and to rule over God's kingdom. This is the insight that the disciples should have gained from the incidents of the loaves and the incidents of the sea calmings. Had their hearts been soft and sensitive and quick to understand, they would have seen And they would have understood. They would have known who Jesus is. The Christ. The Savior. The King. This is the insight that we should gain from the incidents of the loaves and the incidents of the sea calmings. If our hearts are soft and sensitive and quick to understand, we would see and understand. We would know who Jesus is. The Christ. The Savior. The King. The problem is, our hearts are not soft. Our hearts are not sensitive or quick to understand. Our hearts, like the disciples' hearts, are hard. We, all of us, are annoyingly insensitive and slow to understand. Concerning our hard hearts, there are two very important things for us to realize. First, we need to understand the heart, hardened upon the heart of the issue. What is at the heart of the hardened heart? What we need to realize is, though we've been saying that a hard heart is insensitive and slow to understand, it's not just an intellectual issue. Talking about understanding, but it's not just an intellectual understanding. If you flip over to Matthew 14, you'll find a parallel account of Jesus walking on the water. And Matthew, the way he tells it, it ends quite differently than Mark's account. I don't know if you interested when you find these apparent contradictions in scripture and try to work through them but if you look at verse 32 and 33 the same story in matthew chapter 14 it says that when they got into the boat matthew tells of how peter walked with jesus for a moment on the water it says when they got into the boat the wind stopped okay the wind stopped and those who were in the boat worshiped him saying You are certainly God's son. 
Now reading that, it seems like, seems like they're not so clueless after all. It seems like, in fact, that they got it. It seems like, in fact, no hard hearts here. They worshipped him and said he was God's son. Now, I don't know about you, but I, like Matthew, turn to Mark and I say, Mark, what gives? How do we reconcile this apparent contradiction? Well, after thinking about it for some time, I'll tell you what I think. I think they're both true. I think they did worship him and call him God's son, but I think they also had hardened hearts. I think they intellectually acknowledged that yes, Jesus was someone special and someone worthy of respect and reverence, someone sent by God. But they did not yet recognize him as the omniscient, the omnipotent, creator God, the Messiah, the only one chosen by the Father by which men can be saved. And they had not surrendered their hearts to him. I say this because I know, and as, as I've shared already, how the Gospel of Mark ends. We've already read from chapter 16 that even after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus still reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. And I also say this, <clears throat> that they hadn't, hadn't gotten to the, the depths of their hearts because I know that talk is cheap. I know it's one thing to know something and to speak it with your mouth and to even play the part of believing. But it's another thing to have a heart softened to the truth. A heart that truly believes in and puts all its trust in the person of Jesus Christ and the truth that He is Lord of all. It's easy to say that you know things, that you are honoring God with your heart, uh, that, that you're honoring God while your heart remains committed to other things. Let me say that again because I flubbed it. It's easy to say you know and are honoring God while your heart remains committed to other things. This is one of the lessons in the next chapter, Mark 7, where Jesus tells the Pharisees, he tells them, this people honors me with their lips in verse 6, chapter 7. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. I want to tell you about the softening agent. We've been talking a lot about hard hearts. Hearts are hard. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not sit here and play the part of the judge, though, and just sit back and look at the disciples and wonder at their hardness of heart and overlook our own. We, all of us, were born with hard hearts. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Some of us, some of us still have hard hearts, hard like a rock and totally insensitive to the truth. Other, others of us are partially softened. We believe, but we don't trust fully. Our faith is weak. And none of us, and this is important, important to realize, none of us have hearts that are fully softened to the truth that Jesus is the Christ. If we did, if we had fully softened hearts, we'd no longer see him as through a glass dimly. We'd see him face to face. 
So what do we do? What is the cure for the hard heart? What is the softening agent? This is the most marvelous truth of all. What I really wanted to share with you this morning, and it took a while to get here, but the softening agent, softening agent with a capital S and a capital A, the softening agent is the triune God himself. The softening agent is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is the Father who softens the heart. In John 6, Jesus explains the deep truths of the feeding of the 5,000. And he says this in verse 35, John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. So we get to get some insight from the incident of the loaves. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. But, down to verse 44, John 6, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And no one can come to me, verse 65, unless it has been granted him from the Father. These are the words of Jesus. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, but no, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And in Matthew's Gospel, we read where Peter answers the question. He answers the question. What was the question? Who is Jesus? And Jesus asks him, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are the Christ, as we read before. You know what Jesus says. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. My Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. It is the Father who softens hearts. The Father who draws and grants and reveals. <clears throat> and it is the Son who softens hearts. As Luke recounts the softening of the disciples' hearts in the final chapter of his gospel, chapter 24, he records that Jesus, you have to listen carefully, this is short, Jesus then opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They didn't open their own minds. Jesus opened their minds to under, understand the scriptures. It is the Son who softens the heart. And it is also the Spirit who softens the heart. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 again, verse 12, he says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. We know the things of God because God gives us His Spirit to teach us. It is the Spirit who softens the heart. Friends, if the Father does not grant it, if the Son does not open it, if the Spirit does not indwell it, your heart will remain hard. You will remain annoyingly insensitive and slow to understand. But if the Father grants it and the Son opens it, if the Spirit dwells in it, Paul tells us you have the mind of Christ and your heart will, your heart will be soft. 
whether you are an unbeliever or a believer, whether you are young in the faith or old in the faith, you need the softening agent. Capital S, softening. Capital A, agent. You need God to soften and sensitize your thinking. I need God to soften and sensitize my thinking. You need God. I need God to sharpen our grasp of who He is and what He has done. We need God to strengthen our faith in Him, to infuse it deep down to the very core of that rock that we call a heart. Cry out to Him this morning. Humble yourself before Him and ask Him to soften what is hard. Ask Him to soften what is hard. You can't do it yourself. Ask Him to do like what He did for the disciples on the sea. He is the one who puts trials and struggles into our lives with a purpose. And that purpose is that He might bring us to our feet where He will soften our hearts to the reality that He is the Christ. It's true that we are wholly inadequate in and of ourselves to overcome these trials and struggles that He puts in our lives. We are wholly inadequate to overcome them in such a way as to arrive at a softened heart that is open to the truth. The truth that He is the Christ. He is fully able to perform works of power and to rescue us from the pit that our hardened hearts have dug. He will perform that most wondrous work of power. The most wondrous work of power. The miracle of miracles that He alone can work. And that is He will soften our hearts. And He will provide that softness abundantly, far more abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or think according to His power that works within us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise You for these truths. Jesus, we thank You for Your teaching. Holy Spirit, we thank You for working in our hearts. God, we ask that You would soften us to the truth. Soften us to the truth that You are God and we are not. That You are King over all. That we can do nothing apart from You. Father, we thank You for Your salvation. How great it is. We thank You for Your mercy and Your grace that You would condescend to us to soften our rock-hard hearts. And we humble ourselves before You and ask You to continue that process until we one day see You face to face and our hearts are fully softened to the truth that You are God, that You are King, that the Lamb is worthy, that the Lamb has overcome. And we pray in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.